Hello, and welcome to Inside Change. I'm your host, David Callahan. One big takeaway of the 2020 election is that America's electoral map is changing. Democrats are becoming more competitive in the South and Southwest, even as they work harder to secure wins in the Midwest. Demographics are a major driver of these changes, but another key factor has been grassroots organizing, especially in Georgia and Arizona, both of which flipped blue last year. The victories in those two states were no great surprise to Steve Phillips, a political donor and author who has spent years talking about how to mobilize new voters of color and win more elections. Steve has long argued that the Democratic Party and its donors need to do a lot of things differently to build a new American majority, like stop wasting so much money on last-minute TV ads at election time and start investing in year-round organizing as part of a long-term strategy to build power. Steve has made this case in op-eds in the New York Times and The Nation, as well as a book he published in 2016, Brown is the New White. With his wife, Susan Sandler, he invests in grassroots work through the Susan Sandler Fund, a philanthropy the couple created last year. Steve is the host of Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast on politics, and also the founder of Democracy in Color, a political media organization. His new book, How to Win the Civil War, will be published this fall. A quick word about me before we begin. I'm the founder and editor of Blue Tent, which features unique in-depth reporting on progressive politics. And I'm also founder of Inside Philanthropy, which covers the world of foundations and major donors. Please visit bluetent.us and insidephilanthropy.com. Even better, I hope you'll subscribe. And with that, let's get started. So hi, Steve. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. So you published your book, Brown is the New White, in 2016. I read it only recently after the 2020 election, and I was struck by how prophetic the book was on a number of fronts. For starters, you argued that Georgia and Arizona were states that could be flipped blue by mobilizing new voters. How were you able to see that so clearly five years ago? Yeah, no, that's really why I, I wrote the book, because I, I thought every all of this was obvious, and apparently <laughs> it was not uh, to folks who were... So I came of age in the 1980s in the Rainbow Coalition and Jesse Jackson's presidential campaigns. And and actually, I partially dedicate my book to Jesse Jackson, saying who, who, who had shown the power and potential of an electoral campaign tied to the movement for uh, social justice in this country. And so Jesse, went, he rooted his campaign in those communities. So he had this concept that when the old minorities come together, they comprise a new majority. So this was the idea of the rainbow. And he went from uh, 3.5 million votes in 84 to 7 million votes in 88, 400 delegates in 84 to 1,200 delegates in 88. Showing the power, and at the time in '88, he was the highest second place finisher ever in the Democratic primary. So, the power and potential, and he used to always talk about. Actually, I just recently came across. I didn't know this existed. But we brought Jesse to speak at Stanford in 1987 at Martin Luther King's birthday, and he talked. He had always talked about. It. I hadn't actually seen it in 30 some years about the potential of unregistered, non-voting people of color 
and he would compare those numbers to the margins of difference in those different areas. So that had always been my not just my framework, but I'd seen it play itself out. And lost to history is Jesse ran in 88, won uh, New York City, won Virginia. 89, David Dinkins got elected mayor. 89, Doug Wilder won the uh, uh, governorship of Virginia. And so I, I had seen all of this. And then we could see a lot of elements when Obama was running, that there was an excitement about civil, uh, from the civil rights movement. People who had been, you know, uh, come from those communities were very inspired. And so it seemed like this was a continuation of that. And, and then obviously Obama won. And so it all seemed very logical to me. And then when people started talking about, well, we have to go back and double on double down on trying to get the white swing voters and that's the way to actually win, it, it was like kind of blowing my mind. I was all like, haven't you seen, don't you understand that Obama was a continuation of this movement and we have to keep moving it forward? So that's why I wrote the book is because people did not understand what the – numbers showed in terms of the underlying population pieces. And so that is what we ultimately then put into to that book. Obama lost uh, Georgia by uh, 200,000 plus votes, got 47% of the vote without even trying. There were almost a million people of color who didn't vote. So the math was always there, and I had seen it and understood it at that point. So then when I met Stacey Abrams, and she was saying, Obama lost by 200,000 votes. There's a million people of color. We're going to go register them. I'm all like, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. And so that's how I got behind her and partnered up with her from that point. So you uh, have known Stacey Abrams for a decade, uh, long before she was the kind of household name or practically in some circles uh, that she is today. Uh, in fact, you and your wife, Susan Sandler, were, were among her first national funders uh, how did you tune in to what she was doing so early? So we have a friend in common um, with Ben Jealous, who was the head of the NAACP, and Ben was out here in the Bay Area, and we had gotten to be friends when he was at the Rosenberg Foundation and active in Bay Area. And so we had become friends, and he went on to, to run the NAACP, and we you know, have stayed and remained friends. And so Ben knew Stacy from like 20 years ago. They were like student activists coming together and been at these different retreats and organizing stuff. So he connected us. He sent an email in December of 2010 to connect us. And then Stacy replied to that in January 2011. And that's when we actually got together. And so she had this 26-page plan for how she was going to change Georgia methodically, year by year. The very first email to me says, we have a lot of potential in Georgia, but it will require careful planning and friends from the outside. And so we partnered up, um, you know, gave her a little bit of money, helped her raise money. I, I talked to her the other day. I said, so that uh, $10,000 we gave you in 2011 is now translating to $2 trillion going out across the country, right, in terms of the COVID relief and having flipped it. She, she says, I'd like to provide return on investment to my people who support me. So that's that's a, it goes back to that point, right? So we helped her raise, we gave her 10000 of the $54,000 she raised in 2012, and they did reach their goals that year of blocking the two-thirds majority in legislature. 2020, she raised $90 million. Right. So you were early money. Um, so I imagine that over the course of that period of time, you tried to convince other donors and philanthropists to su support Stacey Abrams' work. You were 
been active in the Democracy Alliance. You sort of circulated these these circles of, of, of donors and philanthropists. What kind of response would you get when you suggested to people that they should be playing the long game in Georgia and other states like it? Yeah, no, I, I talked to Stacey after the November election. And I was, I was kind of like, says, I'm mad. She's like, why are you mad? And I was all like, all these bandwagon people, right? And <laughs> It was not an easy proposition at all, and and it was very frustrating in terms of, well, in the early days, just, you know, there wasn't even a lot of basis. It's like, you know, Georgia in 2012, 2013, in terms of trying to get some, and again, people's theory of the case being very different around which voters are most important. You know, we've got to figure out how to, you know, get the white swing voters and figure out what they're thinking and what's the right vocabulary to appeal to them, and that's where a lot of the donor energy, attention, and focus was. And then even in Stacey's 2000, uh, her gubernatorial race, people were slow to get on board in uh, the primary. People were like, well, we'll wait till after the primary. And I was like, well, there may not be anything to wait for if we don't get into it right now. And so different people came to it and they were, you know, resetting. I mean, there's a lot of things that are out there people come to uh, uh, get approached about in terms of where to move your money and what to get supportive and what to get behind. Um, so I don't really blame people per se, but it definitely was slow going and difficult work to get people's attention reoriented both on a state in the South, a state that's not on the national radar behind a leader who doesn't look like the kind of leader that a lot of the leaders in the progressive infrastructure look like. So it was a uh, it was a challenge, but you know, Susan and I have always said that she's one of the most smartest and most sophisticated people that we've ever met in national politics. So we've been very enthusiastic, and have just tried to get as many other people involved and excited as possible. So, in light of what happened in Georgia and Arizona, do you think that the Democratic donor class in the foundation world now? Uh, fully appreciates the gains that can come from playing the long game, investing in year-round political organizing, and trying to really move the needle in in some of these uh, purple or red states. I still don't think sufficiently that they do, and that there there's this default to well, for one is to like what's the shiny new tech thing? Is there an app that can transform everything, or so that people get drawn in that regard? And there's still this obsession, I will say, with the persuasion, attempts to persuade white supposed swing voters, including presuming that there are a lot of swing voters, over trying to do the methodical, nitty-gritty work of increasing turnout of voters of color. That work is not as exciting or sexy to a lot of donors who are drawn to new, you know, newer, uh, you know, cutting-edge tech-type things. And you've even seen it since the election, right? I mean, there's been two big announcements that I've seen, right? That there's going to be, I believe it was uh, the American Bridge grouping going to talk about spending $100 million trying to convince the Trump voters that Biden's doing good work. They're not saying they got $100 million and sink it into Texas and Arizona and Georgia and North Carolina, which is what the evidence shows you should actually be doing. And then um, what was the th- uh Tara McGowan, who has the acronym piece that does that tech shop, they're announcing that she's got this $65 million plan to do this, you know, more of a fancy tech thing, which is all fine. But that's not how that's not what got Trump out of the White House. And that's not what flipped the Senate. 
So I still don't think that the big money is enthusiastic at the scale that it needs to be. And so that remains the challenge is to continue to educate people to learn those lessons and invest that work. And as our experience showed, it's actually far more cost effective in terms of being able to what you can yield in terms of impact and results and ultimately public policy results. I think it is true also, though, that there's a major culture gap, right? You have the the donor class is disproportionately white, comes from coastal America. Many of these people are coming out of Silicon Valley and finance and uh, are, have very few connections to the world of grassroots organizing and movement building. Is that your sense? Very much so. I mean, people, the, the, there's a level of... Um, it's systemic and structural and that the people who have money resonate with people who are like them and who went to their schools and who they can have their own similar cultural touchstones with and whatnot. And they don't get as excited about someone like Stacey Abrams, about someone like, uh, you know, Michelle Tremio in Texas or, or Andre Mercado in, in Florida. That's not the model that they're used to in terms of who are the brilliant, flashy, cutting-edge people. And so they're supportive, but they're not enthusiastic. And that, I think, is part of the difference. And that translates in terms of how many zeros you put into your check for those folks. They're more likely to be comfortable with members of the of the consultant class or people building those new uh, apps to do this or that, the shiny object uh, creators. Right, who come from their community, who speak that language, who have that kind of, you know, slick, fast-talking, you know, I've got a, it's a bit of a music man dynamic that exists, frankly, in terms of certainly some of the Silicon Valley donors, what they gravitate towards, what they resonate with. And it's, uh, it is a cultural challenge. You put your finger on it directly. And so that's part of the work is to both help the groups and the leaders be able to speak that language, but then also push the donors to be able to see past their own um, you know, shortcomings and their own pre, uh, preconceptions. So you've written a new book uh, about the changing balance of power in American politics. You have an analysis of what conditions need to be present uh, for a state to flip from, from red to blue. Uh, you argue that all these conditions are now present in Texas. Lots of talk about Texas in the last election. Um, so walk me through your analysis of what these conditions are, how they apply to Texas, and also some other states where they may also apply. So, yeah, so I, I'm writing a new book, which will be out um, in the fall um, from the New Press, who published my previous book. So it's called How to Win the Civil War. And it originally started out as like a theoretical construct to get people to understand the tenacity of the opposition. Uh, and then people carrying the Confederate flag stormed the United States Capitol. And so the concept of civil war became less theoretical to people. But in terms of how to win, looking at the, the states that have made progress and the places that have made progress. And so we, are, we have five case studies, looking at Virginia, San Diego, Arizona, Texas, and Georgia. That's five. Um, and all of them do have certain common elements that are present, right? And so one is underlying favorable demographics that the demographic composition of the state is continuing to diversify on an ongoing basis. People of color overwhelmingly vote progressive. And so the conditions there are favorable. And so that's what we had seen in Georgia we talked about. Then it's even you know, more so in Texas, right? That Texas, 
Trump won, well, Trump won Texas by, by 600,000 votes. There are 4 million people of color who did not vote in that election. So the potential is enormous if people would invest in closing that gap the way they've, that they've closed it in um, Georgia. So that's a key component. Another component, uh, uh, you know, taking the concept from Jim Collins with his book, Good to Great, he talks about uh, level five leaders. And so all of the great corporations that he had seen had gone, for, gone from good to great had this level of leaders who are, they are very personally humble, but extremely ambitious for their organization. And they're very driven and disciplined and focused. And so all of these places have, have those types of leaders, Tram Wynn in Virginia, um, Andrea Guerrero in San Diego, John Laredo in um, Arizona, um, Michelle Tramiel in uh, 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 Texas, and Stacey Abrams in, in Georgia. So they have that kind of leadership, who, and, and they play the long game. All those places have had 10 years of work that they've been sticking with it, and those particular leaders have been sticking with it for 10 years. And the last piece is that there's an organization driving civic engagement work and the work to expand the voter participation and change the composition of the electorate. So the places that have had all of those elements are the places that have made progress. So that's the less uh, uh, attention has gone to Arizona, but a similar thing has happened in Arizona. Arizona also flipped as well as Georgia did. And so you had it, you have that there, a place like San Diego, California, which is, you know, used to be the kind of launching pad for different, you know, Republicans within the state. It has now flipped its politics. Uh, Virginia, people are seeing some level. Virginia now is all, all the, the levers of government are controlled by the Democrats. has taken place over the course of a decade as the population has changed. So the model is there if people would see it and if they would invest in it. Well, let's talk again about that money piece and the investment. Uh, you mentioned the Texas Organizing Project has a $5 million a year budget. You say it should have a $50 million a year budget. Uh, we look around the Democratic progressive funding space, there's no shortage of money, judging by the last election. But too often, this money doesn't get to the right leaders and organizations. Donors waste vast resources on you know, losing candidates like Amy McGrath on, on television ads. Um, so how do you get the money from the place, places where it, it, it often goes, where it's being wasted, uh, and get it into these sort of this long-term movement building and organizing work that can really yield results down the line? Well, that is the $64,000, billion question for this particular moment. And so now we're coming out of this last cycle, right? We were trying to, Stacey Abrams tried to recruit Raphael Warnock to run for Senate in 2016. She introduced me to uh, Reverend Warnock in 2014. He did a blurb for my book when we came out. And we were trying to get people's attention earlier, early in 2020 for Reverend Warnock. Did a fundraiser for him for his campaign in June of 2020 um, to try to lift his profile up to get people to understand that this was. And so he raised like four million or so by June 30th of last year. And then you have Amy McGrath raising 50, 60 million dollars. And then even Xace was saying right after the November election that he had to replenish his coffers, that he didn't have he had spent all of his money in November in, in the November election. So he was able to raise a hundred million dollars in November and December when it became clear that the fate of the world depended upon that race. 
but he can only raise four for the first half of the whole year. So are people going to seriously take take this seriously and understand the lessons and move the resources, right? Our, I, uh, you know, my organization, uh, Democracy in Color, did these report cards on Democratic super PAC spending in 2020. And we give a bad grade to the Senate Majority PAC because as of August 1st last year, they'd put $7 million into Iowa and zero into Georgia. Obviously, Georgia was the centerpiece of being able to flip the Senate. So this is the moment of truth is are people going to learn the lessons and move the money to invest in the, the approaches and the people and the organizations that do the work, right? And so Stacy and Lauren Groargo did a piece for the New York Times laying out their lessons of these past years. So how do you turn a red state blue and talking about it may take 10 years, but do it anyways. And so that's what I'm saying. This is a moment of truth. So we'll see. We're early in the 2021 but are the big dollars going to go now to those strategies, those groups, those leaders who have now proven that they can actually win? Or is it just going to be the same old, same old, really, you know, kind of obsessed with the wrong strategies that are uh, – uh, Stacey Abrams has this um, analogy uh, in terms of the difference between persuasion and mobilization. And most of the Democrat money still goes to persuasion. She says persuasion is like trying to get – a Baptist to become a Catholic. Mobilization is trying to get a Baptist to go to church. And so just in terms of understanding the, the enormity of the challenge versus what's possible. So we'll see. This is going to be the question of 2021. Well, some philanthropists and political donors have been, uh, I think, really demonstrating best practices here, moving money to the right place right places. I, I had Sarah Williams on the show of Propel Capital, uh, very early donor in a lot of key organizations uh, um, uh, in these in these important states. Um, you and your wife Susan Sandler have also created a new philanthropy uh, Susan Sandler Fund. Um, so, what would be your advice uh, to philanthropists and political donors about how to how to navigate through this space and understand what to do? Because as we were set, discussing earlier, I mean, there's a big chasm between you know your your rich tech person in Connecticut or Silicon Valley and organizations on the ground in Texas or, or North Carolina or, or any place else? Well, I think it's a couple of things. I mean, it's ironic that a lot of the tech money is still not uh, as smart money as it should be, because in theory, you're like numbers and data driven. And so that really would be my first argument is look at the numbers. And so if you look at the opportunity be to democratize and the imbalance of the electorate and then the composition of the population, which is dramatically what's happening in places like Texas, and the chance to change the public prior public policy priorities and issues. Which issues will the government be responsive to is tied to what's the civic engagement, energy and force and voice that they have to deal with. And so there's an issue around, so then looking at the actual numbers. And so that's, I think, a key piece. So that's what draws one's eye to the South and the Southwest. Those are areas going through demographic transformation. The civic infrastructure is not caught up with the population. And the powers that be are actively trying to suppress voter participation, which 
goes back to the 1860s in terms of this level of trying to keep people from actually voting. So that's one piece. And the other piece is who do you listen to and who do you respect in terms of their analysis? And so that's, I think, the main thing is to try to push people to better understand that there are people on the ground who are in touch with the conditions and the work that's up. Like, there's a lot of things happening. There's a thing just came out. Because New York Magazine had this piece quoting a white Obama consultant who now is a, does his own kind of consulting work, and it was a white reporter interviewing him, and much of the article is about lessons about the Latino vote. But maybe you should ask somebody who is Latino, lives in the Latino community, has family members who are impacted by these different members, and really has much deeper insight. Are those the people who are advising you on what you should actually be doing? So I guess that would be my that would be my actually single most important is who do you look to and listen to, and is your circle of advisors simply reflective of you and your universe, your community, and your demography, or do you have advisors who you look to and listen to, who come from these other communities, have insight into them? And now we have enough people who have track records. But the, if you look at a lot of the, certainly the individual donors and as well as a lot of the foundations, they replicate the insularity of their demographic realities. And so you've got a lot of white guys and sometimes white women advising wealthy white donors. Whereas, but there are having people making progress. I think one, one example, and maybe you guys should actually do something about, you know, in terms of featuring is really what the Pritzker family has been doing over the past few years. And so a Libra Foundation, with um, Susan Pritzker has done, they put Crystal Haling, an African-American woman who in charge of a lot of their philanthropy. Regan Pritzker has created her own philanthropic vehicle, put a you know, woman of color in charge of that. That's the model that I think that foundations can learn, look to and learn from. Yes, we have written about the Libra Foundation and, and uh, have talked to Crystal, and that is a a great example of one of these uh, billionaire donor couples really, you know, thinking differently and, and acting differently. Um, so one of the things I love about your work is that you, you have a vision of victory, uh, you have a plan for achieving it, and, and it makes me feel very hopeful. Um, but let's talk a little bit about how things could go wrong. And, uh, and let's start with the Democratic Party and its limitations. Uh, for years, you've been pointing out problems with the party, uh, party's leadership, with its infrastructure. Uh, by and large, the, the Democratic Party is not well fused uh, with this sort of new organizing and movement building uh, work that's been so effective and so cost effective. Uh, and the party's uh, leadership and, and, cons and the consulting class around it tends to think very differently about politics. So how do you change that and create a Democratic Party that, that really does work hand in glove with all this, uh, all this new movement building going on? Well, you have to change who are the people making the decisions. And so that's the fundamental issue is that are we going to have leadership who has control of these nine-figure budgets? What is their strategic orientation and what is their focus? Because Stacey Abrams did not have control that, I mean, you saw it on uh, the night Biden claimed victory. He's all like, oh, we won Georgia. That wasn't even part of the plan, right? Biden campaign did not invest in Georgia. Biden campaign did not, with its near billion dollar budget, 
didn't go to Stacey Abrams and the whole team of groups down there in Georgia and say, what do we need to do or where do we move resources? That's not where they put their money because that's not who was in charge of, the, of their campaign and their apparatus. So that's the fundamental issue is are the people who have done the work and driven the change in Georgia, Arizona, Houston, San Diego, Virginia, are those people and the people who come out of those movements going to be given the keys to drive the overall party apparatus? Or are they going to be kept at a distance? And so that's the operational implication of where this actually needs to go. And it ties back to the strategic priority as well as the ambivalence about equality that progressives and Democrats have had. I'm working on this book. I was just reading yesterday, Eric Foner's book on Reconstruction. In 1866, after the Civil War, the political advice was don't be too supportive of black equality because it'll hurt us electorally. So this has been going on a long time, but now the numbers have changed. And so are people going to fully believe and invest? We have this, I had this experience in 2018 uh, two major donors, two billionaire donors, wanted to move money to House of Representatives races to try to flip the House in 2018. Came to me and asked me where we should go. And I, they had done all this analysis, looking at the numbers, the deep spreadsheet. I was like, California 21, the Central Valley, it's a majority Latino district, 12,000 vote margin. There's 100 plus thousand Latinos who don't vote. That's a very promising place to go, invest in. And this, this donor wanted to give money to a group which would have an ongoing money, which would have ongoing uh, presence in the area. So, but they wanted to go through House Majority PAC, which is the super PAC. And they were told, well, don't go to that district. There are a lot of Latinos there. They don't vote in midterms. We should look someplace else. And so they pushed back, insisted that they go there, moved the money to uh, uh, Communities for New California, which has ties in the United Farm Workers' work, they contacted 30,000 voters, door knocking, turn, uh, uh, um, doing calls, won that seat in 2018 by 800 votes. And we lost it this time by like 1,000, 2,000 votes. But that's still a winnable seat. But it was the people who were in charge of the budgets were completely disconnected and had a very different strategy. And so until you change those people, it's going to continue to be an uphill fight. And that is one of the big fights of the next two to four years is who's going to be in charge of those budgets. Does Jamie Harrison at the DCCC make you optimistic? And again, hearing this talk of a 50-state strategy. Well, yeah. I mean, Jamie is good. And it's, it's encouraging the direction that he, he's talking about. Although I would argue, I mean, there's a, you know, the Democratic National Committee has an internal political problem. They have to deal with 50 different state chairs, 50 different state parties. And so it's a logical thing to say 50-state strategy. There really needs to be an intensive focus on like seven states. And so are people you know, willing and able to do that, to put the money into Arizona, Texas, Georgia, Florida, North Carolina, to flip those places, which can be fundamentally altered in terms of the direction? And then, frankly, how, there's a whole piece in Politico is that how much influence or control does Jamie have and how much of this to deal with coming out of the White House? And this whole article is talking about General Malley Dillon, who's the deputy uh, White House uh, uh, chief of staff, really being the person in control because Jen used to run DNC uh, back in 2009. 
And back at that time, she was quite unapologetic about they were not doing people of color focused work. And she told me that in 2009. So I don't know if her views have evolved since then. But does Jamie have the orientation and the fact that Biden's campaign did not put any money into Georgia does not suggest that that they're leading with a clear understanding that that's how you go about winning. So we'll see. But it's not uh, the the leadership. I mean, I used to talk about the leadership of the Democratic ecosystem was a near apartheid structure. And I actually did a piece for the nation in 2016. Every Democratic infrastructure organization that had a budget of over $30 million was run by a white person in 2016 in a party that's half people of color. So until we crack that and are willing to actually give those folks the money and the responsibility to run and execute the programs, we're going to continue to be fighting these fights in ways that are, you know, frankly frustrating. Let's talk more about the electorate, uh, the voters. Uh, a key argument of your book, an argument you've been making ever since, uh, was that Democrats should forget about chasing these these swing white voters that everybody's always talking about and focus on mobilizing this new American majority coalition. Uh, meanwhile, Trump went in the exact opposite direction, looking to mobilize uh, disengaged non-college white Americans. And that strategy was pretty successful in places like uh, Wisconsin and, and Michigan. And uh, and so, you know, it seems like it's easy to imagine a future in which more diverse states in the South and Southwest swing into the Democratic column, while mostly white states become more Republican. And there goes the blue wall for a generation. Um, and are you worried about that? I mean, we have, of course, millions of 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 non-college uh, white voters who are people who don't vote. And, and uh, I read that in Wisconsin in 2016, there was half a million non-college whites who didn't vote in that election. Um, and I guess more broadly, the, my question would be, if political competition and voter mobilization becomes more structured in America along kind of ethno-nationalist lines, does a Republican white party that it manages to bring new whites into the uh, electorate, um, isn't that isn't it pretty well positioned to uh, continue to be pretty strong in, in, a, in a number of these mostly white states? Well, that's the I mean, um, Ron Brownstein, the, the Atlantic, did a piece talking about how the 2020s may be like the 1850s. And that is so we're, it's all very narrow. So in, in, in my book, Brown is the New Way, I talk about the new American majority. I quantify Obama's coalition, the percentages that, of which uh, sectors of the electorate, uh, demographic sectors, and extrapolate that out to the whole population. And at that time, it's gotten a little bit more so, but it's like 51%. So it's a majority, but it's a narrow majority. It's not a given in any, in any stretch. And it is enough, a majority in enough different states to be able to actually win. But it's narrow, but getting bigger. So that's an important piece to this. And in a lot of ways, Trump manifested, he, he uh, tested the theory in terms of bringing out in type of what law, uh, lost to the analysis about how Trump increased his vote is that he did lose a lot of white voters. There's a lot of you know, the suburban whites switched. So if he lost voters and then still got 10 million more voters, that means he brought more than 10 million people out. I would argue is that he squeezed every racially fearful white vote he could possibly find 
and that it, that's a, I think you think again we lost the history is actually how close we actually came to tipping over a to losing the election and then b to actually having an actual coup in fascism which if it, if the election had just come down to Pennsylvania which is what their plan was they would have tried to crush, crush Pennsylvania but because Arizona and Georgia changed the math so it's by no means a given that this this you know demographic potential is going to go in the in the in the Democrats' direction, and there's also a vulnerability in terms of they don't sufficiently generate enthusiasm from these communities. They're going to be vulnerable, and there's no action. They're running around with their crazy but not crazy efforts trying to get Kanye West on the ballot in all those different places. But if what if Marco Rubio is the nominee, and so his cultural connection to the Latino community would likely attract greater support, and if there hasn't been greater explanation and clarity and commitment to that community and the Democrats, then there's a lot of vulnerability there. So that all exists. But the other thing I think that people are missing in a lot of these in these analyses are young people. And so people talk about the electorate as if it's static, but it's getting increasingly diverse and increasingly progressive, I would argue, in terms of who's actually coming up. Many young people the only president they really knew was Barack Obama up until 2016, right? So their, their world being shaped, their set of issues, rather attention to climate change, their openness and concern about racial justice issues, that's going to become a bigger and bigger sector of the electorate. And so if you're thinking from a business standpoint on what's the growing market, how much are you focusing on that population? So yes, there's uh, risk even in the Midwest, but there's also potential there and there's potential in terms of doubling down on young people's issues. And so to be able to try to hold that blue wall, but the most promising alignment of trends, population trends with politics, is to build a new blue wall in the South and Southwest. So what do you think is the right balance, uh, if you could sort of put, put the point broadly, between working to mobilize uh, voters of color and paying attention to white voters to kind of get over the sort of thresholds that you need to maintain, uh, Democrats need to maintain in, in places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan. Well, that's the other thing I was point I was going to make too is that I think there's also a disservice and a lack of appreciation for progressive whites, and that there, you know, as I call it, meaningful minority of whites are progressive. And so all of this kind of pandering and bottom line sense of trying to gently uh, 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 speak to the insecurities and uh, even the resentments for that sector of population. But there are whites who believe this should be a multiracial democracy, who do want to see racial justice, who do have a more progressive viewpoint. And there are more of them that could be brought out as well. And I think particularly among young people, there's more potential in that regard. So, but it is a balance, but fundamentally, this is, I think, what we saw within Georgia and even in Arizona. So, yes, some white people who voted for Trump flipped back over and voted for Biden. Not a huge number, and it was only a number that mattered because so many people of color had voted and had raised the Democratic floor to put it within that level of reach. And so the priority has to be, and it's, when I was working on my book, I was, uh, I don't even shop much or whatever. But when I came out, I discovered uh, Costco, which is the only place I believe where people pay the company to be able to shop there, right? That 
Costco's focus is on retaining its customers. It doesn't spend much money on advertising at all. It tries to serve its actual customers, the people who it actually has. And I think that's got to be the fundamental dynamic, is you have to inspire, secure, tend to your supporters first. Then you can talk about trying to persuade others. But when the, the, the balance is completely out of whack at the moment, I mean, I would say it's probably... 90%, 90% persuasion, 10% mobilization, whereas it probably should be the other way around, or at least 70% mobilization, 30% persuasion. So that's my assessment of it all. So uh, last question, and this kind of harkens back to your, your specter of a Marco Rubio uh, candidacy. Um, so what do you make of Trump's success in adding to his vote share in immigrant communities? The vote swings in, in some places were really striking um, yeah, just I looked at a map of New York City, which I'm quite familiar with, and, and could see all those uh, voters on the Upper East Side moving to Biden, and then a big swing in the, in the South Bronx and in Harlem um, and other immigrant areas uh, to, to Trump and the Republicans. And, I, you know, in my mind, it kind of called into question some uh, that sort of stability of this new American a majority coalition. And the, the argument I've seen is that, you know, as immigrant groups assimilate more, they'll be less a reliable part of the democratic bloc. And the analogy has been made to uh, Catholics in the 20th century who sort of started out uh, with, from many immigrant groups, were very strong Democrats, moved steadily to the right, became a kind of core part of the, the Reagan coalition. Um, what's your take on all this? Yeah, I think a couple of different things. Um, we, um, in a, our most recent podcast, we have Mary Gonzalez on, the Texas state representative. And her, uh, she's a, uh, she got elected as a 28-year-old Latina lesbian from El Paso. And it's just not the model in terms of what the, but she's extremely progressive. But her father um, is Republican. And so she was talking about that dynamic and about partly there's an issue around um, people like her father don't, they're not on Twitter, they're not caught up in a lot of the different dynamics. They kind of see more broad things like, oh, well, Trump seems like he's effective, right? So there's kind of some level of that dynamic in terms of communication effectiveness. So that's that's a, a dimension to it. I haven't fully done the numbers yet. Maybe I should go do them now. Is um, my, well, I haven't done, a, I have done them for African Americans, but I have not done it for Latinos. Any increases Trump made were largely with, for African-Americans, with black men. And I believe it's probably the same case for Latinos. And so I think we underestimate the, the role of sexism and the power of machismo. And so I think there's some element of that in terms of Trump's success and his personality and persona attracting some uh, men of color in that regard. So I don't think, I, wouldn't say, I would not extrapolate out to the community overall. So I think that you have kind of that um, issue as well. James Baldwin has this, his, was kind of his last book. They collected all of his essays and sent a, a, a book called The Price of the Ticket. And he has an intro essay. And he says that the price of the ticket in America for immigrants was to become white. And so you see a lot of those different groups who had been discriminated against becoming assimilated but they could be assimilated in a country which has prized whiteness and saying as it, its first 1790 law that to be a citizen, you had to be a free white person. It's harder for people of color to become white. 
So you have that kind of th that barrier. And one of the interesting things to watch is that it's almost contrary to that dynamic in terms of what may have, what may have happened with Catholics and whatnot, is what's happened with Asian Americans. Is Asian Americans have actually gotten more progressive generationally over the past 20, 30 years and, and more democratic in their voting. And they were not in consequential part of the vote in, um, in, 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 in Georgia. So that's an example. And it's, it, it's also a question for both parties, right? How much are Democrats going to be willing to fully embrace racial justice, immigration reform, say this is a multiracial democracy? And then for the Republicans who saw that Trump got more votes than anybody's ever run for president before not named Joe Biden, right? That, that, so are they going to continue to go down that direction? And with the, with the essence of that appeal being demonizing and, 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 and uh, marginalizing and, and, and voted people of color, or are they going to try to be more multiracial? And so that's going to, is it going to be Marco Rubio? Or is it going to be the, the South Dakota governor um, person, right? So which direction that they're going to go? Well, one of the wrinkles in this analysis about immigrant voting in 2020 was that uh, in general, the, the electorate is bifurcating more along education lines and that non-whites and white non, you know, voters have more in common depending upon their education. And, and that as you have a Democratic Party that's seemingly more, more and more dominated by, by college-educated uh, people and elites, um, is, it, is there the real potential of just starting to lose lots of non-college people across all parts of the Democratic coalition? Well, not when it's as, not when the country is as racially stratified as it has been for the past 400 years, right? And so you've got all African-Americans of all racial groups, of all educational levels, voting Democratic, voting progressive. Um, so the larger question is going to be, if in fact you have conservative and Republican leaders who are minimally more sensitive, if not more open in terms of reaching out to and trying to connect with people of color, what's going to be that ramification in a moment when Democrats are still very ambivalent around how thoroughly they should embrace those communities and those agendas? And so that's the struggle, the balance of the 2020s and what we're going to be grappling with. Steve, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. Enjoyed it.